Even though Congress is technically on recess, it has been a busy week in the nation's capital. The week started with a letter from White House counsel Patrick Cipollone to Speaker Nancy Pelosi informing the House leader that the White House was not going to participate in an impeachment inquiry that it considered unconstitutional. On Tuesday, the White House refused to let U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, testify to Congress. That same day, Democrats sent a subpoena to the ambassador. He's now scheduled to testify on Thursday, October 17th. By Thursday, the House Intelligence Committee had subpoenaed Energy Secretary Rick Perry for his role in the Ukrainian controversy. Also on Thursday, two associates of Rudy Giuliani were arrested on charges of making illegal campaign donations. The two men are connected to the effort to recall the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. Yovanovitch appeared in a closed-door deposition before the House Intelligence, Oversight, and Foreign Affairs Committees on Friday. Whew, that's a lot. This is Politics with Amy Walter. So where did things in Congress go from here? For that, I talked with Congressman Raja Krishnamoorthy, a member of the House Intelligence Committee, who represents Illinois' 8th Congressional District in the Chicago suburbs. In the letter the White House sent to Pelosi this week, they argued that an impeachment inquiry was invalid because the House had not voted to formalize it, as had been done during impeachment proceedings for Presidents Nixon and Clinton. I asked Congressman Krishnamoorthy why they haven't done so, especially if it would mean potentially getting the White House to participate in the process. You know, there's nothing in the rules or the Constitution or the laws that require such a vote be taken. And the reason why it was taken in the past is to empower the committees of jurisdiction to have the tools necessary to do their impeachment inquiries. However, since those, um, uh, since those episodes, uh, the committees have acquired the powers necessary to do what they have to do. And so such a vote is not necessary. But I do think that the White House um, has been bringing up this procedural issue. But interestingly, has been deflecting attention from the substance of the allegations in the whistleblower complaint, you know, namely that the president has been exerting a pressure campaign on the Ukrainian leadership to, you know, uh, basically meddle in our 2020 elections and assist in his reelection efforts. They are curiously very quiet about those allegations. And um, I think that uh, reveals a big weakness in their position. The other argument the congressman would be just call uh, their bluff then and say, okay, you know what? You say that this is partisan, this is a witch hunt, that we're being unfair. Fine. We'll take a vote. We'll open the inquiry and then you will produce your witnesses. Unfortunately, they're moving the goalposts uh, as we speak and I think they would just move it again. I think they do not want to they don't want to respond to this inquiry. Um, you know, I think the the second page of that letter tells you all you need to know about the premise of their letter, which is that they think that the July 25th, 2019 call between President Trump and President Zelensky was, quote unquote, completely appropriate. And, um, you know, off of that faulty premise, they go on uh, kind of a polemic in their eight page letter. You know, Amy, we're this is a sad time for America. Um, I did not come to Congress to impeach a president. Um, I never thought I'd be in this position uh, where we're even inquiring about an impeachment of the president. But at this point, you know, I took an oath to protect the Constitution and I have to do my duty and we have to inquire uh, about whether impeachable offenses occurred. 
but we need the White House to also cooperate and produce documents. And if they're not willing to co- cooperate, then they have to comply with subpoenas and the law. So what happens if that next piece that you pointed out, subpoenas and the law, they continue to ignore? Are we now to a place where we're talking about obstruction of justice by the president? Yes, it would count as obstruction of the impeachment inquiry. And the corollary to that is that I think the blocked testimony and evidence um, and documents uh, would you know, basically invite the inference that they actually corroborate the whistleblower's allegations. And I think that um, that is a problem for this White House and this administration, especially at a time when the majority of the public wants us to do the inquiry. Um, I think the last poll that I sh- saw in the Washington Post said that I think almost 60% of the public at this point supports the inquiry being done. And so blocking that inquiry, I think, is blocking the will of the people at this point. So what happens next, though, Congressman? What do you do as the House if your co-equal branch decides that they are no longer going to comply with your requests? Thankfully, there are people who are coming forward, um, you know, patriotic, commendable people within the uh, executive branch who want to complain of wrongdoing. Uh, They might pursue the formal whistleblower process. Um, or they may want to voluntarily cooperate when a subpoena is directed at them personally. But the point is that uh, the press, along with the public, uh, along with Congress, are now uh, putting enough pressure on this administration that um, I believe that a lot of the information will come forth one way or the other. So it may come forth either through documents that are being leaked to you all, as opposed to documents that the White House willingly gives over? To some extent. Um, Obviously, we have to take it one step at a time. But I think that the problem for this White House in employing a stalling or delaying or obstructionist approach is that there are enough people coming forward, enough documents coming forward uh, through various means that, in my humble opinion, It'd be much better if they produce it themselves to guard classified information, uh, to make sure that there's no inadvertent disclosure of information that could, you know, uh, cause harm in some unforeseen way. I hope that cooler minds prevail and they back off of this approach that they're taking. But either way, this inquiry is moving forward. We are going to proceed with this inquiry because the American people demand it. How long... Are you comfortable with waiting for this cooler head to prevail process? I don't know. Um, I, I personally don't think that we should have a, uh, a deadline by which we conclude the inquiry. I think that the American people want the inquiry to proceed, but they also want us to complete the investigation and get to the bottom of what's happened for two reasons. Uh, one, they want to know the, the full extent of the alleged scheme if, if the whistleblower's complaint is accurate, um, the scheme went far beyond one phone call. It extended to a whole pressure campaign over many months uh, involving the Ukrainians. But then the second part of that question is who is responsible for this? Who's involved and who directed it? Because we need to know right now how to stop them from continuing because the scheme may be ongoing. 
How will you feel comfortable knowing that you've gotten to the bottom of this? I don't know. Again, I think that the mm-hmm. the leads are so numerous right now. You know, I'll just give you an example. When I questioned acting uh, director of national intelligence McGuire at the open hearing a couple of weeks ago, he confirmed uh, in his answers to me that there were more than a dozen uh, participants on the call in question, the July 25th call. And he believes that most of them were taking notes. And therefore, um, I personally think that we want to find out, you know, from each of those individuals what transpired during the call. The other part of this is we haven't even talked to the whistleblower yet. The whistleblower is key in understanding the nature of his or her allegations, as well as, um, you know, who are those other individuals that uh, inform his or her complaint. And so I still think that we have quite a ways to go at this point. Can you give us a sense of how your constituents are processing all of this information? It is a topic of conversation. Um, I think that people are uh, definitely paying attention. Um, I think that uh, just based on the interactions that I've had, and I'm going to have a town hall meeting tomorrow night, so (laughs) we'll get a lot more feedback at that time. Um, Based on the interactions I've had, people want to pursue this impeachment inquiry. Overall, I'd I'd say I'd sum it up with this text message that I received the other day from a friend. And, you know, he basically said, Raja, do whatever it takes to get to the bottom of this and follow the facts wherever they lead. Um, And this is uh, coming from, you know, basically a Republican who, um, you know, had a different tone maybe six months ago. What do you say to others who believe that there are two issues here? One, you're going to be so caught up with this impeachment that it is derailing any other legislative or other issues from getting attention. So it's sucking all the oxygen out of Washington that's not focused on that. And the second being that you all, you know, you campaigned in 2018 saying you were there to get things done put things back on track. And it seems now that we're going to get caught up in this back and forth between the White House and Congress. You know, we have to protect the Constitution and our democracy and our elections. If there's one thing that we learned in 2016, nobody wants to have happen in 2020 what happened in 2016, namely a foreign power interfering in our democracy. And so when they read that transcript and they see the president asking the Ukrainians to, quote unquote, do me a favor, you know, basically manufacture dirt on a a domestic political rival, um, that gives them uh, tremendous concerns about whether our 2020 elections are going to be free of interference. And even if that means impeaching a first term president, this would be the first time this had ever happened. In other words, doing this right before voters have an opportunity themselves to say whether they want to continue this president serving in the White House? I think so. I think they've seen enough. If I had to sum up kind of my observation on this, I think they don't want any irreversible damage to our uh, 2020 elections or, for that matter, to our democracy at this point. And, um, you know, what they saw in that transcript and the whistleblower complaint and the inspector general's report, as well as the text messages and the other documents that have come out, uh, give them pause that something, you know, very, very wrong is happening. 
and uh, they want to put a stop to it. Congressman Krishnamurthy, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. The impeachment inquiry by House Democrats into President Trump really picked up steam this week, and the president took to the rally pulpit for the first time since the I-word became a reality. It was a pretty raucous night in Minneapolis. They say emoluments. Nobody ever heard of the word emoluments before. Emoluments. Lisa, I love Lisa, Lisa. Oh, God, I love you, Lisa. Now, the president hasn't been shy in going after Democrats. The do-nothing Democrat con artists and scammers are getting desperate. The inquiry. They know they can't win the 2020 election. So they're pursuing the insane impeachment witch hunt. Or Joe Biden. He was only a good vice president because he understood how to kiss Barack Obama's ass. Apart from the rally, his campaign put out a pair of attack ads tying it all together and in one calling the Democrats' efforts a coup. Over the last few weeks, these ads, which fact-checkers agree are misleading and the Biden campaign has requested be pulled, have called into question what is and isn't allowed. And the truth is, it's pretty murky territory. Everything that we're talking about really implicates the First Amendment. That's Roy Herrera. I am of counsel at a law firm called Ballard Spar. I specialize in political law, which is primarily uh, advising clients on federal and state campaign finance and election law. We called him up to find out exactly what the regulations are. The rules are not going to be too restrictive because then they'd run into First Amendment problems. The FCC can dictate basically the form of an advertisement. In other words, what needs to appear on it. Uh, The FEC, which is the Federal Election Commission, also regulates the form of things, meaning they'll have rules related to, you know, disclaimers on advertisements, for example. Um, Similarly, the FCC will have rules, for example, if if it's an ad that's going to be placed on the radio, the FCC has rules on what that needs to sound like. In other words, what disclaimers need to be on there. The same thing with text messages, robocalls, things like that. So both federal agencies play a role in regulating how advertisements are run, but they don't necessarily have rules that would allow a station to uh, essentially reject a political ad. Uh, They're not that restrictive. It's also important to remember that unlike broadcast television, national cable networks like CNN and NBC Universal, who have taken the ad down, and tech companies like Facebook, who hasn't, are not required to follow FCC regulations. So the standards are confusing, and the reality is you, as a voter, will be bombarded with these ads across all platforms, for better or for worse. But what does an actual fact-checker think of this ad? For that, we turn to Eugene Kiley. He's the director of factcheck.org, and full disclosure, factcheck.org does have a relationship with Facebook. Since December 2016, they've been assisting Facebook to identify fake news stories, or as Eugene calls them, viral deceptions. Here's what he thinks of this ad. It's really filled with a lot of innuendo, because what it does is it says fact and gives a statement. Fact gives a statement. Fact gives a statement. There's four of these quote-unquote facts that are presented. Basically, what they're doing is what you would call uh, false logic. They're taking one plus one and getting 11 instead of two. In this case, it starts out by saying, Joe Biden pressured Ukraine to fire its prosecutor. And that's true. They have a clip of, uh, of Biden talking about that. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. 
Oh, son of a bitch. And then it goes, fact. Fact. The prosecutor said he was forced out for leading a corruption probe into Hunter Biden's company. So now you get these two separate facts. On the one hand, true, the then vice president of the United States did pressure the Ukraine to fire Shokin, the uh, general prosecutor. But he wasn't the only one. He wasn't uh, going rogue on uh, Barack Obama. This was the uh, Obama administration policy at the time. So there was a lot of pressure that was put on from the uh, international community, from reformers within Ukraine, from Congress, and from the Obama administration. So Biden wasn't acting unilaterally here. And the second point about uh, Shokin saying that he was investigating Bursama and that uh, Biden's son is a, is a board member. There was an investigation that was going on. It's hard to tell, frankly, because it's so murky uh, what goes on in, in the Ukraine, whether it was still active or not. There had been reports that it was active. There was reports that it was dormant. The bottom line is that what they were investigating had nothing to do with Hunter Biden. It preceded Hunter Biden. And this is from the prosecutor who had replaced Victor Shokin. So there's very little there there. Fact, Democrats want to impeach President Trump for discussing this investigation with Ukraine's president. But what they're trying to do by stating these quote unquote facts Fact. is to create this false narrative that Joe Biden was uh, doing something illegally to benefit his son. Donald Trump won, but Democrats want to overturn the election. Don't let them. And so when it comes to political advertising, the kind of stuff that voters are going to see a lot of coming through into the 2020 election, they're still... On their own? <laughs> yeah. Consumers are still, after all we have learned from the last elections, you're still kind of on your own as a voter. Yes. And that's you know why we started all those years ago and why we're still at it. We will all get bombarded with TV ads in 2020. We have a service that we go through. We get every single House and Senate ad, every single presidential ad. We'll go through it, it, all of the presidential ads and some of the Senate ads and very few of the House ads, and we'll write about them. All uh, you as a consumer can do after you see an ad on television is try to seek out the information yourself because you're not going to get it from your local TV station, and you're certainly not going to get it from the TV ad itself. I asked Eugene what bothers him the most about all of this. I know the focus is on uh, Facebook right now, and frankly, rightfully so, because uh, that's where most Americans get their news. But it bugs me, though, that like local TV stations who accept all this advertising dollars do very few fact-checking on their own. I mean, w when you're sitting at home, on the couch watching your favorite TV, you are, by the time October rolls around, you're getting bombarded with TV ads and just one after another. And there's just no effort made whatsoever for local television to do any fact-checking about it. Or there are a few that do a good job, but I gotta tell you, there's not that many of them. And when it comes to social media, I don't see Twitter doing anything. You know, this Trump campaign ad that CNN rejected, that was on Trump's Twitter feed, got tons of, uh, of views, 1.7 million in the space of like six hours. It's hard to get them to do anything.
Eugene Kiley at factcheck.org told us that local TV stations, stations that can make a lot of money in an election year, don't do much, if any, fact-checking of the ads they agree to run on air. And election law attorney Roy Herrera told us that First Amendment protections give candidates pretty much free range to say almost anything they want in a campaign ad. I wanted to know just how much money campaigns are spending on advertising thus far, especially in the fast-growing world of digital advertising. I caught up with Erica Franklin Fowler, an associate professor of government at Wesleyan University and the director of the Wesleyan Media Project. The challenge for those of us who study advertising generally is that the number of places that digital advertising appears and the myriad of forms that it takes makes it very challenging to know the universe. We have heavily invested in tracking both Facebook and Google because we those are the two places that the vast majority of the spending happens, but we also have to know and acknowledge that it appears in a lot of different places that we still cannot track if you uh, were to buy advertising directly through uh, an online website. That information is in neither of these places. What has been spent thus far in the 2020 campaign on digital advertising? Over $60 million. $60 million. $60 million, yeah. It is sort of stunning. Do we have any way to compare this to a previous election? That's the problem. And the Wesley Media Project prides itself on the historical comparisons, because when we talk about television, we're always able to put television spending in historical context, because we have nearly 20 years of data on television. But because uh, all of the social media archives became, or they're not really archives, I should say libraries, the social media libraries only became available in uh, summer of 2018. That really is the first set of data that we have that speaks systematically to what was was spent. And because this is the first presidential cycle, you know, we can tell you a little bit about the 2018 election, but we don't expect that to be comparable for obvious That's reasons. Right. The presidential cycle starts a lot earlier and will spend a lot more money. In the old days, you as a candidate, you're budgeting as much money as you can possibly spend on television, even to the point where you're probably oversaturating the market. Correct. Now you say, well, we have an extra $2 million we should spend that on Google. What was remarkable to me as well is that you all found that up until this point, so mid-September of the off year of 2019, Facebook has earned $44 million from selling ads to presidential aspirants and That's support right. of super PACs. And Google has raked in over $21 million. So already these platforms have made close to $70 million before we've even hit 2020. That's right. And and what both, is that going to look like when 2020 is done? It will be stunning amounts of activity. We talked about 2012 as being a pulverizing year, and I lack the appropriate adjective that to, to talk about 2020. <laughs> it's just going to be an obscene amount of money that we just don't know. Do we know um, what this $70 million was spent on and who's spending the most? So that is the real benefit that the libraries are providing is not just, you know, a window into the amount of activity, but also a window into who the, the money is coming from and, you know, a little bit about what they're saying. What they're saying is the hardest piece to do because there are so many ads mm. um, relative to the television world. But yeah, um, Donald Trump's campaign has spent by far the most on digital 
activity. And that was true in mid-September, and it holds true even if we look through, you know, more recent data through the 5th of October. On the Democratic side, Tom Steyer is blowing away the competition. We have to take a quick break. More of my conversation with Erica Franklin Fowler in just a moment. As we know, incorrect information is purposely being distributed via social media platforms. I asked Erica Franklin Fowler from the Wesleyan Media Project what advice she had for voters as they're getting bombarded by digital ads. I encourage people to pay attention to the sponsors. And, you know, in some ways, individual citizens actually have more access to information than researchers do from these online platforms. For example, if you come across an ad on Facebook, you uh, there is a little button that you can click, why am I seeing this ad? And when you go to that page, you actually get more information than the researcher can can access programmatically about why you're seeing a particular ad. So there's a fair amount of information there. So how are you able to track which candidates are um, spending in Facebook and Google if in their advertising there's no requirement, unlike television, that a candidate says that they are supporting this ad? There's no quote-unquote I'm Amy Walter and I paid for this. The regulations for television and digital mm-hmm. are, are different. And so what's happening in the digital sphere, in part due to lack of regulation from the federal government, basically you're, you have uh, individual platforms making different decisions. So on Facebook, we can tell who the sponsor of the advertising is through essentially the the paid for. It, they do have a disclaimer line where advertising on Facebook has to appear, it has to be connected to a page. So there are pages that are running ads, but even on individual pages, you can have different ads run or paid for by different entities. And so the identification of spending on Facebook is really a page name by disclaimer setup. Mm. where we we go through you know both of those things to uncover the both the candidate committees the leadership packs and any other sort of outside group that might be spending on advertising in the Google world um the entities either report via their FEC identifier or their EIN identifier which is a helpful way Google is only surfacing the candidate, the election-related activity, whereas Facebook is giving you a much wider universe of, quote-unquote, political advertising. So it doesn't just include things that are related to candidates. It also includes any any advertising that touches on the list of uh, nationally important issues that Facebook t- identifies. So you have two very different systems that are that are operating, and that also f- sort of further complicates the researchers' task in trying to make them comparable and trying to uh, sort of cross the line from one to the other and 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 compare them to TV. Erica Fowler, thank you for walking us through all of this. I really appreciate it. Of course, my pleasure. Okay, here's the thing. Whether it's Facebook or Google or your hometown local TV station, all of them make money off campaign advertising. A lot of money. 
So refusing to run an ad would literally cost them profits. But we also want to make sure that candidates are able to say what they want without being censored. In other words, we don't want a TV station or social media platform to be able to refuse ads from candidates who are espousing positions that those platforms personally dislike. In some ways, that's already happening on cable TV. It's no secret. Trump disparages both CNN and MSNBC as fake news. And so it shouldn't come as much surprise that CNN and more recently NBC Universal pulled a Trump campaign ad that called reporters from these networks lapdogs for the Democrats. And look, it's easy to understand why so much attention is on Facebook and the role they will play in 2020. We learned a lot about the coordinated disinformation campaign that Russia weighed and continues to wage on the U.S. political system using the social media platform. But Facebook isn't really doing anything differently than how broadcast television works. At the end of the day, all of us have to recognize that being a voter requires active participation. There are ways to educate yourself about the stuff that's coming over your airwaves and your mobile phone. Nonprofit groups like factcheck.org are doing the research on the ads. Facebook allows you to see who's sponsoring the ad that pops up into your feed. It requires a little extra work. But isn't democracy worth that little expenditure of energy? A few weeks ago, just days before Speaker Pelosi announced the impeachment inquiry, I went to Capitol Hill to sit down with Congresswoman Catherine Clark. We're sitting in your office (laughs) at the Rayburn Building. We're close to the U.S. Capitol. Clark is a Democrat. She represents the 5th District of Massachusetts outside of Boston. As vice chair of the House Democratic Caucus, she is the second highest ranking woman in House leadership. In 2018, she worked on recruitment as co-chair of the Red to Blue program, which helped Democrats regain the majority. Her job is to help prioritize the legislative agenda for House Democrats, but she also has to be cognizant of the different political challenges facing many of the freshman Democrats she helped elect to Congress. We started by talking about one of the top issues for Clark and the Democrats in Congress, the issue of gun violence. We are much more focused on changing the players and changing the whole way that we approach gun violence and see it as a public health crisis that it is, that is complex and has lots of pieces. It's not just mass shootings. It's, it's the suicide rates for our veterans. It's the daily shootings that take place in, in our country. It's the accidental shootings. How do we reinstate a sense of security in our communities when we know that people are not feeling safe? The House passed the Bipartisan Background Checks Act and the Enhanced Background Checks Act back in February. But the likelihood that either bill would get a vote in the Senate was slim. And that was before the impeachment inquiry officially started. I asked Congresswoman Clark what it says about next steps if nothing gets done this year. She said she would not want to be a senator up for re-election in 2020. We are not going away, and we're going to keep the pressure on them. And I think it was the March for Our Lives and the Parkland students who really changed the energy and the debate around this. You know, mom sitting at home, when you have your young children doing mass shooting drills and you have a U.S. Senate who is too afraid to take up a bill and vote on it, vote it up, vote it down, do whatever you're going to do, but to not even take that vote, people understand 
that that is not doing your basic job. What do you think it does, though, for some of these activists, some people who have been very new to this process, right, that they were activated on gun issues, either Post Parkland or the Pulse nightclub, and continue to see inaction? Do they become disillusioned with this process? What I have seen talking to activists, um, I have um, survivors and parents of children who have been lost in mass shooting coming into my office again today. They are not discouraged. I think we saw that after Newtown and people couldn't believe that we couldn't vote on these issues after kindergartners were shot in their school with their teachers. But the midterms have changed that. And they've realized that, you know, they can elect people like Jason Crow. You know, I look at the gun violence crisis and how it's torn apart so many families. Enough is enough. In a tough district, who's a veteran, but who led with the issue of gun violence, which we wouldn't have seen just a few years ago. And they have watched as their financial power has shifted too. When you look at Lucy McBath's race, the NRA put 17,000 in. You know, gun reform, gun safety activists put $4.1 million into her race. So I think they see this as a step. They won the House. The House has acted. It is a common sense bill that is supported by the vast majority of Americans across political ideologies. And they are going to demand change. And if they don't get it, they're going to change the people who go to the U.S. Senate. And what do you say to the critics who say, this seems like something that is very popular, not drastic, but it's a slippery slope between this and then gun confiscation. And you already have a former member of Congress running for president, Beto O'Rourke, who's saying, hell yeah, I'm coming and taking your AR-15s. I would point them back to the assault weapon ban that used to be in this country that didn't result in gun confiscation. And I would say that there are a million excuses, but we are running out of time. We cannot allow this kind of violence to exist in our country at rates that it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. This is a public health crisis. Um, I think that we have to follow through on the research dollars the House put in. You know, you don't think that this is the answer. Let's research how we can really impact this and make sure that we have good answers. But we do know this. Background checks save lives. And to expand that to the internet and to gun um, shows is a critical loophole that we need to close. And I don't think there's much more time or room for excuses. Are you still going around the country doing your recruiting for uh, 2020? I am no longer have an official role okay. in the in the recruiting, but I still talk to candidates on a on a weekly basis. Yeah, and I assume that the freshmen have a relationship with you because yes. you saw them as candidates. That's right. And now they are new members. Do you feel like you have to be an advocate for them in leadership meetings when it comes to some of the legislation that they may see as moving too far left? Are you the one raising your hand and saying? hey, I'm hearing from these freshman members, we have to, they, they feel uncomfortable. Yep, 
I, you know, my the reason I ran for vice chair was to be at the leadership table and take what I saw from these incredible candidates that ran and now are incoming members of Congress. And we have this very diverse caucus. But if we just sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, that is our strength. You know, we have this great diverse caucus, then we're not using it. But, you know, we want to bring those voices, and that's what I see my role as. So whether it is um, the voice of a moderate who's saying, don't forget how this sounds to farmers in Iowa, or whether it is one of our women of color who's saying, I have faced discrimination in so many ways in my life. Let me tell you how this plays into this policy. The diversity is only our strength as we use it. And we enable some of the voices that might not always be heard, may not always be the people to stand up, be on television, stand up in a caucus meeting. We want to make sure their voices are heard too. So I don't see that as a tension between my own politics and my own voting record. I see it as an ability to make our caucus as truly representative as the American people as we can be. And that's by bringing those voices and making room for them at the leadership table. Congresswoman Clark, thank you so much for sitting down with me. If you follow my Twitter feed, you probably know that I have a few obsessions. I love cycling. I despise winter. I think birds of prey are pretty cool. And I'm a fierce defender of my often overlooked generation, Gen X. We're supposed to be at our peak right now. We're in our late 40s and early 50s, just the time when we should be running companies and maybe even running the country. President Clinton was 47 when he was elected president. Obama was 46. George W. Bush was 54. But while there are no shortage of Gen Xers running for the Democratic nomination, they aren't getting much traction. So what's going on with my generation? My Gen X cohort, Peter Beinart, a contributing writer for The Atlantic, is wondering the same thing. So if you look at the previous times when the presidency has skipped a generation, where a new younger generation has come into office, the president has usually been in about their mid-40s. So there was a switch when John F. Kennedy took over, and then another switch uh, when uh, Bill Clinton took over. By that standard, you would have expected that we probably would have already had a Gen X president by Mm. now. And if you look at the 2016 campaign on the Republican side, when you saw candidates like Scott Walker and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, some of the early frontrunners were, in fact, just around that age. They were in their mid to late 40s. They all lost to Donald Trump. And so we had this weird thing where we went from a younger president to an older president, right? Donald Trump is 15 years older than Barack Obama. And this year, again, we have a bunch of candidates who are Gen Xers who would have looked like formidable candidates. Cory Booker is one. Beto O'Rourke is another. Kamala Harris is on the just at the kind of upper edge. And yet so far, and of course things could change, they've all underperformed. And the three top candidates, according to polls now, are all older. They're all still baby boomers. Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders. Now, the argument of my piece is 
that Gen Xers also have a fundamental ideological problem in both parties. And their ideological problem was that the identity of both parties shifted pretty abruptly around 2016. And so that people who were building their political careers in the pre-2016 era in many ways have been left on the wrong side of that shift and that Gen Xers are just exactly the age at which they would suffer from that. I absolutely concur with your thesis here because we think about somebody like Kamala Harris cracking down on truancy and her record as a prosecutor, which at the time were considered mainstream democratic values, have now become very unpopular. Right. The Democratic Party in the 1990s felt that it had a huge political problem with being perceived as soft on crimes. And Kamala Harris was part of a whole generation of Democrats who responded to that with some tougher sentences. Now, some of that doesn't look very good in retrospect. But one of the particular policies that Kamala Harris is now being attacked politically for is a crackdown on truancy on parents whose children were not going to school. That policy initiative of hers actually doesn't look so bad in retrospect. It looks like it was actually pretty successful. And yet her unwillingness to defend it now suggests that Democrats have become really unwilling to defend things that they used to believe in, even when those things actually seem to have worked. Republicans have had the same challenges as Democrats have, things that were once popular during the Reagan era, the George W. Bush era, especially immigration, now no longer okay to be on that side as a Republican politician. Right. The Republican Party, up until Donald Trump, had a pretty strong pro-immigration wing. It was a divided party, but there were strong pro-immigration voices. And someone like Marco Rubio in particular, because of his Cuban-American background, uh, was seen as someone who could help move the Republican Party to a popular moderate position on immigration. But it's turned out now, and this is what Donald Trump kind of revealed and exploited in his 2016 campaign, was that actually the core of the Republican Party was in, moving in a much more nationalist and nativist and anti-immigrant direction. And this was, I think, a big part of the reason that Marco Rubio ultimately lost, because he was caught on the wrong side of this abrupt mm. shift. And the fact that he had a history of supporting a path to legalization for undocumented immigrants turned out to be a really big problem in his campaign. So, Peter, you and I have covered politics long enough to know that politics is all about timing. And isn't it just the case that these Gen X politicians, they came up at the wrong time and voters want a candidate who meets the moment? And simply put, these candidates just didn't. So what's wrong with that? Look, I I'm not saying that there's something inherently valuable about having a president of any particular generation in office. The thing that troubles me about what's happened is that while there were certainly a lot of things that the Democrats and Republicans advocated a decade or two ago that have turned out to look pretty bad in retrospect, there's always this danger of a kind of a herd instinct, of a kind of an ideological march in one direction. And what troubles me is that you have candidates being unwilling to support positions they held, even when those policies have actually worked out, I think my fear is that we lose the capacity to learn from the past. And does this suggest to you then that perhaps a Gen X president will be coming in with that value system that today is not considered politically palatable 
but maybe 10 or 20 years from now when they are in their late 50s, late 60s, they will become more palatable. I think that it's always challenging, but the the thing that I hope is that Gen Xers will have the political courage to be able to say, yes, there were things about that moment where I was rising up politically that were wrong, but there are also things from which we can learn and we should not take this kind of presentist view that we are all we are kind of omniscient today and the people in the past were just stupid uh, and and wrong about everything. Peter Beinart, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about this. My pleasure. Peter Beinart, a contributing writer at The Atlantic and a professor of journalism and political science at the City University of New York. one more thing for me today. Things are moving really fast in Washington on the impeachment inquiry, and it's natural to want to know what's going to happen and when and how. To be honest, I don't think anyone really knows where things are going from here. And for those of us in the political journalism business, it really does us no good to speculate or to assume that we do. I know it seems obvious, but in this era, it's getting harder and harder to do such a thing. Every piece of testimony, every poll result, every piece of data is getting treated as the most important or the game-changing thing, but they aren't. And the more they're treated that way, the harder it is for news consumers to really understand what matters and what doesn't. So my advice, take a deep breath, take a break, and follow the story where it leads. The team that put this show together every week, Jay Cowett, Vince Fairchild, Amber Hall, Polly Arungu, Patricia Jacob, our executive producer is Deirdre Debke. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook. Leave a comment there. Also, if you missed anything or you want to listen back again, check out our podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And leave us a rating while you're there. And of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. 